All content on this channel is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be construed as professional financial advice. Should you need such advice, please consult a licensed financial or tax advisor. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of information on this channel. in progress okay and so. away we go <laughs> this is this is the second time this is the second time Gil, that we're going to cover dutch bros yes uh, ticker yes. bros on the new york stock exchange uh we actually we had a, a little snafu uh, we tried to cover this company a couple weeks ago and yes. uh, had a little misalignment on the market cap uh which led us to very different results yep. in valuation um, yep. As so always, I you think, were correct and I was completely wrong. <laughs> which has never happened in any quantitative component of any conversation you and I have ever had. Uh, but in this case, I was just so thoroughly confused. It was, uh, it was, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> I, I, um, I, I gaslit you for so long in that episode. I gaslit oh, myself. <laughs> I, I think we should release it like as a as a funny like aside. Standalone, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the second time we're covering this. So we covered them right at IPO just a few weeks ago. It was trading around seventy a share, a little less. Uh, it's down to fifty five now. So huge bargain. Um, just a little bit of background. <laughs> huge I, the swings IPO in price. Was, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, the IPO was September fifteenth, and it was trading a little below thirty a share. Yeah. Um, and since then, we also had the benefit of a Q3 earnings report in between our first imaginary pod that you'll never hear and this pod. Mm -hmm. So we get some updates, which I think will be helpful. So, uh, Gil, you want to give a little bit of a company overview uh, yeah. of what they do for people that aren't familiar and don't live on the West Coast? Uh, so Dutch Brothers is a com coffee company. It got started in uh, Grants Pass, Oregon, by a pair of uh, brothers who were originally dairy farmers. Uh, um and the surviving brother, Travis Bursma, um, is the kind of the chairman. But they just, you know, he and his brother started this coffee company out of like some sort of push cart, coffee push cart in Oregon. And they grew it to um, a, a chain of stores. It's about 400 something, uh, 500 something stores now. Um, and they, what they do is I think they just sell these very sugary iced uh, some, or, or hot uh, coffee drinks that have weird names like Dragon's Blood or Angel's Kiss or like Dutch Brothers Rebel Nitro. And they have this very, um, what I would say, laid back vibe in the stores um, that I think differentiates them from a, what you, we would think of as a main competitor like Starbucks. Um, and they're a fast growing company, just recently IPO'd. And their goal is to you know, take the number of stores that they have, which is around 400, 500 stores and roughly eight exit over the next uh, seven years. So that's right. the company. You'll hear a lot of comparisons to Starbucks throughout this podcast because obviously the most well-known coffee shop. Um, right. And I think just to give you a sense, again, 11 billion on market cap, but their revenue is only about 500 million. So by comparison, 
Starbucks is 23 billion. Uh, Dunkin', uh, I think they're private, but it's 1.3 or 1.4 billion. Pete's in, is around 1 billion. In revenue, in revenue. You're quoting revenue yeah. numbers, right? Yeah. In revenue. Yeah, just to give you a, 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 a comparison for yeah. where these guys sit. They're tight, <laughs> Dutch, right? Dutch they're Brothers, just getting started. Dutch Brothers is not even at a billion in revenue, right? And then Starbucks is big, like in 2020, has 23 billion in revenue, you know? And right, which obviously- makes some of the metrics we talk about really interesting because you can compare a behemoth like Starbucks and say, what are the metrics? What makes Starbucks so great, right? Is it loyalty? Is it the store layout? Is the experience? And those are the things we're going to probably hone in on um, for Dutch because they do have a unique, quirky, fun culture, like the broistas instead of baristas, which is fun. The names of the drinks Gil went through. I mean, the Blue Rebel brand, they have some uniqueness to the products they offer. The culture is kind of unique. And the way they use their space is, is really smart. They're small, uh, but they use a lot of extra space. So they have like a walk-up window, they have a patio, they have a quick exit lane, so they don't have congestion. It's just meant to do quick service. It's really also well-designed for COVID. So a smart a smart business, an interesting business, and one we can probably compare pretty easily to uh, a few other major competitors that are much bigger than that. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like Starbucks got its start in the 1990s. And I remember they were people were talking about it as a, a third place. Um, the part of the reason why people would go there is just, you know, it was a nice coffee experience. The service was really good because all the baristas at Starbucks are, you know, go through this training program that, you know, uh, where, where they're really, the focus is on, you know, very good, uh, customer service and always treating the customer, right. That kind of thing. And, um, but also the stores were nice enough where you could meet somebody for coffee and it wouldn't be like some strip mall experience where, you didn't really love the tables that you were sitting at or the chairs that you were sitting at or the ambiance or the music. It was like this third place where you could go and meet and kind of like work even. Like there's lots of people who've like finished their great American novel at a Starbucks or work remotely right. from a Starbucks or have studied for their organic chemistry class uh, in Starbucks, that kind of thing. Um, you know, but Dutch Brothers doesn't have that kind of like quote, unquote, third place experience. They really have these, as you said, small footprint stores that are always playing loud music. Um, and uh, they have these like high throughput drive throughs So most of the time people will go to Dutch Brothers. They don't actually get out of their cars. They just drive right up, get in line. Um, sometimes there's like very, very long lines um, uh, of cars. And, you know, you just order at the, um, at the, uh, at the window and then get your drink and, and then go. Um, yeah. So it's a very different. And, and, the, mm-hmm. and the culture, I, I want to get into the, the culture for sure. I think that's my first real bullet here, but a couple things from the Q3 report that are new for me. Um, and the, 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 metri- the, the main metrics I care about, right. Um, I think are the ones that, that the, the street will project. They beat everything. I mean, mm-hmm. 23 cents per share versus expected. I think it was like six or seven cents a share, which is a big beat. Revenue was up 50%, 130 million in Q3 versus I think 125 expected. And one of the key metrics that we should drill into is same store sales, which is one they've been crushing. Yeah. And that was up seven, 7.3% versus 5% expected. So we just had that report. They're doing really, really well. Q3 was good for them. They are COVID proof. Uh, part of that's due to the small store footprint and high throughput and drive through. Uh, but I think there's some other elements there too. So let's, 
jump into more qualitative big picture stuff. Um, do you want to start the loyalty piece to me is, is the most interesting is, is, are they, do they have something unique where they're capturing a certain demo of customer and keeping them uh, and upselling and, and, yeah. and really maximizing that? So I'll come at, I'll comment on that from a couple of different angles. The first is, um, you know, as a full disclosure, I've never been to a Dutch brothers. Like I've looked at them, the closest location, it's a lot, like th- at least 30 minutes away from me. Um, and they typically put their location, site their locations in uh, what I would say more inland areas in, um, in, in, in Southern California and also in Nevada, like I think Arizona, Texas, Oregon, that kind of thing. So these are cheaper locations because the rent is cheaper, but it's also further away from the more coastal areas. Um, so like there are no Dutch brothers in like a big city like LA or San Francisco yet. Um, so I have, I've never tasted the, 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 their drinks, um, but I, I came across them because I have a friend from college who lives in uh, Nevada and there's a Dutch brothers that opened up near him and he started to go and uh, he built a habit of going every day, I think before work. And they have this loyalty app. Uh, yeah, this, they have this loyalty card that's kind of built into the app. Basically, you know, when you go drive, you know, do your order, uh, you scan, they scan the barcode on your app or whatever, and then you get these points. Um, it's As of yet, I don't think it's exactly like the way it's a Starbucks um, loyalty app works, where you actually like give Starbucks money in advance. <laughs> and then, you know, they'll, they'll, they, they basically owe you services and then they take the cash up front and then they'll, Starbucks will give you the drinks later on. Um, the, uh, th- that kind of infrastructure has not yet been built for uh, Dutch Brothers. What they do is they just give you these like stars or whatever. Um, and then that can result in a free drink after you've gotten um, in, uh, collected enough stars. So my, my, my friend from college, he's showing me a screenshot of his loyalty app. And um, I, I think it's like a, like a star for every dollar that you spend or something. And I calculated it. He's like, spending on the rate of like 200 something dollars a month um, for, for a, Dutch brothers. So he's definitely, he's definitely built a habit. And uh, I think if, so that's one angle. So it's just, uh, this a one of one story um, from, from somebody I know, but the other angle I started looking at was I just looked at the, look at their store locations in California and then started, and also in Texas and started going into the Yelp reviews um, for people who've been going to those stores. And there are, there are a lot of reviews where people will say things like, I was driving from uh, on a three hour trip from here to here, but I may always make sure that during my three hour trip, I go like 30 minutes out of my way so that I could wait in line 30 minutes to get Dutch Brothers coffee and then be on my way. And I'm like, if I'm on a three hour a road trip, I'm not usually going to go 30 minutes out of my way to wait in line 20, 30 minutes just for a coffee, unless it's like some sort of like mind-blowingly good coffee, right? Like it's very, it'll yeah. take a lot for me to do that. And people are doing this and saying that they're doing this on Yelp. And then I'll yeah. see like, most people are saying like, oh yeah, I love this drink. I love this other drink. And then the, I'll see some, some, some complaints and I'll focus on the complaints and the complaints are like, the line's too long. And I, <laughs> And you know, that's kind of like the best of all complaints because uh, it's not like they hate the drinks or they hate the service. It's just that it's so popular that they have yeah. to wait longer time in line. 
Um, so those kinds of data points really make me feel like whatever they're doing um, has been very, very good at building this group of people, customers who are very loyal and like repeat consumers. And not only do they keep coming back to the app and spending more and more money um, every month and that they're fairly reliable, but also they're evangelists. And that's the key part because for a, a company to really, really grow, the best thing is word of mouth. And what you really need is people to just love your product so much that they are willing to take kind of like their social credibility on the line and say, look, I love this coffee shop so much. We need to take extra time out of our day to, for me to take you to this shop. And I want you to try this coffee as my friend because I know you're going to love it as much as I do. And of course the friend's like, I've never heard of Dutch Brothers before, but I'll go because you said I should go. And then they try it. And then, you know, there's a certain percentage chance that they'll love it too. And then they'll spread it to friends and family. And then you keep growing and growing and growing like that. And that's what yeah. I really love to see for, for, for fast growing companies. They don't really need to Yeah, and I think there's, and there's good data underneath what you're saying. <clears throat> if you look at the mobile app specifically, which is the one, you know, that's one you can get numbers for. They have almost 2 million members, 1.6 something million members on the mobile app within two weeks of launching. Okay, so- yeah. Starbucks has 19 million rewards members. Um, they have 31 times more stores, right? Or yep. uh, if you look at the Q3 results, they have, um, so in like two months since they've been announcing, they have uh, 8% of Starbucks membership count, <laughs> right? Which yeah. doesn't sound like much, but it's 8% with having 1% the number of stores. Yeah. So that's a, that's, a big, that's a big deal. That, and like, I know I download every app in the world, I don't use them, right? Like I probably use 5% of the apps on my phone and they go up, they go up to cloud and they get deleted, whatever. And I don't care. I don't use them. That's a sticky app and it's getting used because like your friend, they build loyalty. I mean, Starbucks is the gold standard for mobile loyalty apps. Every loyalty program in the world tries to mirror what Starbucks built. Yep. Um, I think these guys are able to do it organically and it's, it's word of mouth marketing, which is unbelievable. The other data point I have is uh, there's a company, a, a data platform called Placer that, mm -hmm. that looks at like different kinds of data, data points and, and draws out all kinds of intelligence uh, from the data points they're extracting. And one of them is uh, the, I, I saw them quoted. I don't remember the exact article. It was the Yahoo Finance article. But um, in addition to seeing visits going up over time, we see that visits per location number is also going up. And that indicates loyalty. I think that's a big issue too, right? Like it can be one thing if, you know, if, if um, you know, over time they're getting more visitors, but each specific location is improving. And it's usually, like you said, these are in small towns. It's not like they're attracting people, uh, you know, more people by marketing on billboards and people pull off the highway. This is the same people that live there or that commute through there and go yep. there over and over and over again. That's a really sticky, sticky metric. And to your point, like that's, that's what you want to see in a company like this, that there's some kind of loyalty and brand for it. Yeah, they just have so much momentum. And I think the other interesting thing is that if you look at their menus, um, they're, uh, they have the staples, which would be some stuff like, you know, they, they would call it the Dutch classics, uh, Dutch freeze, like, and then they have names like yeah. the kick, the kicker, the caramelizer, the annihilator. Um, those are the <laughs> classics. 
Um, but they're also like doing a lot of innovation in their menu. And I think that's taking a page out of the Starbucks playbook, which is that there's a whole bunch of standard drinks at Starbucks, uh, you know, the latte, the um, frappuccino, that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, there's also seasonal offerings and sometimes they change in Starbucks. And um, some of them have gone viral, like, you know, the pumpkin spice latte. Pumpkin spice latte. Yeah. And then you, you get the pumpkin slice latte. <laughs> you take a picture, post it on Instagram, it goes viral, that kind of thing. And I think um, Dutch Brothers has that similar thing where they have these um, uh, drinks like the peppermint bliss cold brew, uh, the Glacier Peak Rebel, the hazel truffle mocha drink uh that um, are new <laughs> that are new and uh you, you you know create a little bit of buzz because people will like post it on their social media or uh, you'll hear about it in the app and you'll say oh i want to go um you know take an extra visit out in the afternoon um you know while i'm taking a break off of work and then just you know get this peppermint bliss cold brew which has white chocolate and peppermint and soft top and uh, candy cane sprinkles that kind of thing um, the other thing that is interesting, and we talked, we touched it about it, is that they, um, they, they, they have these baristas that they call broistas, and the broistas are uh, take a, another page from the Starbucks playbook, which is that they are very customer oriented and customer centric. They will kind of, I think, there's some sort of data integration with the loyalty app where. Um, for example, the broista will can know that it is your birthday when you're driving up and proactively give you something. Um, and then, of course, like if you show up with a dog in the back of your truck, uh, they'll like sometimes on their own, you know, give like a whipped cream like in a cup for the dog just mm, because that's cute. you have a dog there. And, you know, that kind of thing builds so much. Uh, loyalty and goodwill that you really do want to come back if you're treated right. And um, the interest, other the interesting thing about the Broistas is that um, I'm not sure what the, the healthcare plan is um, like compared to Starbucks, but um, one of the biggest things that you'll see is that uh, they have an, a culture of internal promotion, like which is very similar to the way Costco does it. Costco doesn't really like hire managers externally. They always take people who've like put in the time, you know, work their way up from like lowly cash register guy uh, and then promote those people to managers. And in that kind of culture, um, people who are at the very bottom, they don't lose hope and like disengage from their work and then burn out because the hope that they'll become manager one day and you know, lift themselves up by their bootstraps, so to speak, just keeps them working. Um, yeah. And the Dutch Brothers does the same thing. They literally don't have any ex managers that they hired externally. Uh, they always try to promote through the ranks. So they, you know, hire a bunch of young people, work them really hard, train them in like the broista culture, like let them make every single drink, serve every single customer, run every single process. And then when they're ready, they can become manager. And some managers even become district managers in the sense that they'll say, you know what, uh, you are tapped to lead uh, to spearhead growth initiatives and opening new stores in this important new market. Like, you know, we're growing into Texas, we're growing into Oklahoma. We need people who know that our processes to just go out there, open new stores, create everything from scratch. And then you got these young guys who, you know, 
they don't have any roots. They're hungry. They're like, they want to move up and they'll move from like uh, Bakersfield, California to Texas to make a lot of money and, you know, put their entire time and effort into uh, making sure that the new store, the new stores open and, and do well from the get go. Um, and that's a very powerful mechanism that they've got to have uh, very, very good people, experienced people, <laughs> and still at the same time, not have to pay too much for labor because they're hiring a whole bunch of like young people and not super experienced industry veterans from the very beginning. Yeah, I think there's pros and cons to that. Uh, my first take on it was exactly what you said. And it reminded me a little bit of Starbucks giving their employees stock, even the barista stock early, which was cool. When I was a kid, I remember they, they started doing that. It was pretty innovative for a big company to do that in a high, you know, fast growing company like that. Now it's pretty normal, but, you know, to have uh, your your barista uh, earning stock options in your company. I mean, it, it's it's, it makes perfect sense. Uh, here, it's it's a little bit, uh, there's also a downside there, I think, in terms of expansion and growth, in that they're not franchising like they were at the beginning to grow to their 500 stores. They, they stopped selling franchise license basically to anyone who wasn't already part of this Dutch bros ecosystem, right? Um, mm -hmm. Definitely keeps the positive vibes. You have to be part of their training program. You, you probably have their culture and their values, and that's great for consistency, especially if, if loyalty is your main differentiator, then it's super important to retain that culture, right? Um, but I do think it, it does put a little damper on how quickly they can grow. You can't just expand, you know, if their target is to get to 4,000 stores in, in three years or whatever it is, like in, in some ways I would love to say, you know, that that's, that's a, um, you know, an unrealistic goal or whatever, but on the other, it's probably spot on. And, and, and what you'd love to see with a company like this is them lowballing it and saying like, like we're going to aim for 4,000, but really they're looking at 10,000 here. I don't know if that's possible from internal promotion. I mean, maybe it is, but it seems like that would slow things down a little bit. It adds a lot of friction. Right. Right. So, I mean, talent is probably the limiting factor um, for them being able to rapidly expand. I mean, and beyond that, it'll be just the availability of uh, the kind of real estate that their format that they're looking at. Um, and then the third gating factor for the expansion would be um, supply chain and logistics, because um, yeah. if you're gonna expand into a new market, you kind of also wanna open up um, your distribution centers so that you can have um, everything operating smoothly. Um, they actually only still have, I think, one roasting facility where they roast their beans, it's still in Oregon. Uh, and so if you imagine they're, they're, they're trying to roast beans in Oregon and then send it over to like the biggest um, fast expanding markets in California and Texas, um, that's going to be like quite a trip in it, you know, uh, whereas if you switch over to Starbucks and think about their distribution centers and how many roasting facilities they have, it's much more smooth operation with better logistics. So they're going to have some, mm, what I would say, growing pains and CapEx that they'd have to put into yes. Uh, making sure that they have proper growth um, and they're not, you know, sacrificing, let's say the quality of their products because they have distribution issues, that kind of thing. So, yeah. yeah. Um, well, let's switch over to the quantitative analysis. So do you want to start talking about what you think about the numbers that you're seeing? Um, or do you, do you want me to start talking, thinking about it? I think there's only a couple things that, that really, that really popped out for me and, I, and I'll let you do most of the quantitative piece. Um, one was their, their profit margins, right. Mm. Which, uh, 
are very healthy, but the Q3 had some things in there that were interesting for me. I want to talk about once you go through it, but um, they have, I think I saw like uh, almost close to 30% contribution margin for company operated stores, which is all they're doing now, mm-hmm. uh, which is great. I mean, that's, that's really, really great. So that, that's one thing I want to drill down into. Um, and then the other thing, you know, what's, what's their long-term potential? And, and it reminds me a little bit, I know this isn't quantitative, but I'm reading uh, Sam Walton's book about starting Walmart. Oh my God. I love that book. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's yeah. great. He's yeah. so fun to read because he's such a like down to earth, normal dude. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there's a story in there about how he stocked moon pies. These like, uh, I guess they were, you know, very popular dessert kind of cake thing mm-hmm. in the front aisle in his stores in, in Arkansas. And yep. they sold out immediately. So he bought like 8 trillion of them and stocked them <laughs> in the stores yeah. uh, and the other stores. And they didn't sell at all because nobody knew what they were. And like, <laughs> Here, here's it's an interesting thing. There is some territorialism to coffee. Like people in Boston drink Dunkin'. They don't drink Starbucks. People in mm. you know whatever. There, there are Dunkin' towns. There are Starbucks towns. Like I don't know if if this is going to translate. This hip vibe of young whatever is going to translate to the East Coast or outside of the U.S. Right? Like Starbucks has already done a lot of the stuff that's really really hard. Uh, and I just looking at the numbers there, um, I just don't know how, how that growth, you know, especially hindered a little bit by uh, only promoting internally, uh, how they're going to hit some of those numbers. And again, with the Q3, we can get into it, but you can see them kind of trimming down their profitability in order to expand. So total revenue last year was 327 million, right? With a net income of about 5.7 million. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a pretty big decline from the year before. It was 28.39 million in 2019. So it's like 80% or close to 80% decline in profitability on a per store basis, which is kind of interesting. Again, I don't, I'm not saying that means everything. It was just an interesting data point to say, as you expand, you get some economies of scale, but you also have to spend more. You have to spend more to build, you have to spend more to staff, you have to spend more to uh, to market, right? Because people aren't going to know what this is. And maybe word of mouth will work, but maybe it won't. I, I think some of that profitability will get eaten into. I love the numbers right now, but those numbers are going to change uh, as they continue to expand. So that, that's all I wanted to harp on, but I'll let you do most of the quant piece. You know, just going into the what what their, their targets are, they want to have 4,000 stores. Uh, whether or not that happens in three years or five years or seven years, that's kind of the bigger picture question. I think the, right. the, what, if you look at it historically from let's say 2018 to 2019 to 2020, they are <clears throat> growing their store count by about 40 something percent compounded annually. So they went from um, 90 cop company or uh, operated stores in 2018, only 90 stores um, to 118-ish stores in the next year, and then 182 stores in 2020, which, mind you, was a a very challenging time period because of COVID. So they went from 90 to 180 company-owned stores in about two years. That's 40-something percent CAGR. And as of like a couple months ago, September, um, 2021, they now have 241 company-owned stores. That's going from 182 at the end of 2020 to 241 stores um, nine months later. So that is some very, very fast growth. Obviously, 
you know, the challenge increases, the larger your the base, the base number is that you're calculating 40% growth, right? So once you get to a thousand stores, you got to open up 400 stores to, to that year to, uh, to, to get to your, to maintain that 40% CAGR. Whereas like right now they're just opening something on the order of like 60 something stores. Um, so that gets to your idea of like, oh, do they have enough actual manpower to open like at a thousand stores? Um, you know, 400 stores that year, because right now they're just opening 60-something stores in nine months, and that seems a little bit more doable than 400 stores in a year, right? Um, but anyway, so that, that's historically what their performance is, and it's unknown whether or not they can continue that pace or if it's going to start tapering off to a 20% CAGR. But at the end of the day, what they really want to hit is, the, what they, they feel they, they're confident in hitting is 4,000 stores in some sort of unknown time frame, three to seven years, something like that. Um, one thing that I do really like is to sometimes think about stores on a unit by unit basis. So if you think about Starbucks itself, it roughly has 130 billion in market cap, probably something around 32, 33,000 stores. Um, and if you just take the, this is kind of a stupid measurement, a lot of real and quote unquote real investors will say I'm really stupid for this, but I'm just doing back of the napkin analysis. So, you know, if you take the market cap of Starbucks divided by the number of stores, you'll get roughly about 4 million of market cap per store. Um, and the, let's take like, so, so each store it, for Starbucks is roughly worth about 4 million, but if we now switch over to the revenue, the, in 2020, Starbucks made about 23, 24 billion in revenue. Um, and if I you know, adjust that on a per store basis, that's roughly about 730,000 of revenue per store. So this is not profit, but this is, um, this is just the, the, the raw number of money that just comes in from, from selling stuff. 730,000, okay, that's not bad. Um, and if I do the same analysis for Dutch Brothers, um, they are getting like about 1.7, 1.8 million in revenue per store. And they don't even have the kind of, uh, they, don't, they don't even have the kind of what I would say like marketing that uh, Starbucks and brand awareness that Starbucks has. Because uh, pretty much like if you ask anybody in America, do you know what Starbucks is? I think like the, I can't imagine like many people not knowing what Starbucks is, right? It's like, it's like asking somebody what's McDonald's and somebody going like, what's McDonald's? And they're like, have you been living in a cave? Um, but Dutch Brothers, I, I can feel like I could ask a whole bunch of people, have you ever heard of Dutch Brothers? And they wouldn't know. But, you know, they're still doing, so they, they have, they don't have that kind of marketing heft that Starbucks has, but they're doing 1.8 billion in revenue per store, whereas Starbucks is doing 734,000 per store. Um, and, you know, if they're, you're, you're thinking about them being um, roughly the same gross margin per store, uh, that, that would mean that, you know, the profitability per store for Dutch Brothers right now is about a little over twice the profitability per store as um, Starbucks is, is doing right now. And it's kind of like steady state, slow growth process. So, um, you know, if you apply that forward-looking um, 1.8 revenue, revenue million in revenue per store, bump it up to maybe two, 2 million per store on 4,000 stores, that's 8 billion in revenue. Um, and uh, the, the hard part is like if something's doing 8 billion in revenue, 
like what is appropriate market cap for it? I mean, Starbucks is running about probably uh, five and a half times revenue. Uh, like market cap is five and a half times re the, the revenue. Um, and so if I just do something like, I don't know, three or four, uh, then I could get somewhere between 25 to $30 billion market valuation for uh, Dutch Brothers. And, you know, we set, we established at the beginning of this discussion that, you know, Dutch Brothers trading somewhere at like $60 per share is worth $10 billion. So if you're thinking that it could become worth somewhere around $30 billion someday, assuming it hits all its targets, um, with 4,000, you know, stores and, uh, you know, about 2 million of revenue per store and, you know, the mar margins stay constant. Then you're looking at it roughly a triple in an unknown time frame. Like, obviously, I would want a triple in the shortest time frame possible, right? Like a triple in three right. years. But it could be a triple in five years or a triple in seven years. And then that'll change what your revenue, uh, your, your CAGR will be, your investment CAGR will be, depending on whether or not it's three or four, five or seven years. But I mean, if I were to like ballpark it as that's like seven years, instead of thinking it'll happen in three years or five years, I said it's seven years. Um, if, you, if it could triple in its uh, market cap in seven years, then that's roughly around 18% CAGR. So you could call it 20%. Um, and so at the end of the day, uh, with the caveat that you feel confident that you Dutch Brothers will hit these targets. Um, and the biggest one of them is that store count will go from 470 something company owned stores to 4,000 company owned stores. And you think they could do that in seven years. Then you can kind of like think, okay, I'm gonna expect if they do that, I could expect something around a 20% compounded annual return. And is the risk that I'm taking laying out capital today, uh, worth it to achieve that 20% return and how confident am I in these assumptions? That's the, at the end of the day, what an investor has to answer for him or herself. Um, yeah. So that's, that's I think you're, I think you're, you're downplaying one key thing to me too much, which is the profit margin. I, I, they may get to 4,000 stores uh, and they, they may do it in three years or two and a half years, but if they have to gut themselves to do it, and that profit margin goes from, I don't know, 1.7 or whatever you're saying down to closer to where Starbucks is, where it's 700,000 or even less. Now you're going to have to open twice that. You need 8,000 stores, right? Or 9,000 stores to make up the difference in profit. Right. You're saying right? that you're saying that in the, they like, it's possible that they cherry picked like the absolute best yes. locations. And there's not that many absolute best locations. So as they go from 470 stores to 4,000 stores, they're going to be in like, you know, they're going to go from A grade locations to maybe accepting B grade locations and then sometimes C grade locations. And I so just they think can't they're be doing 2 million per There's stores. the location piece. Yes, there's that. And there's the location piece, but there's also the culture. And I'm, I'm, I'm reminded again of the, the Walton story where like not everything translates. And if your differentiator is the culture, I don't know, man. Like if you told me the products are outstanding, you just can't, you can't get this much caffeine into a drink and they've patented it. Now <laughs> I'm interested, right? Right. Like drink that kind of ever. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or just some some way just, that the product just, itself is is differentiated. 
um, that that would be interesting to me because that that would translate regardless. I think like people want a product, they want a better or a good or a different version of it. The culture doesn't necessarily translate, and it doesn't. And again, loyalty being the main pivot point, it doesn't necessarily translate into the same degree of loyalty. So you have to build in some risk into them maintaining the profit margins they have too. Otherwise, you're going to have to up the store count. Right. And that's going to make it even harder. Yep. And I think if they don't, if what you're, if what you're worried about comes true, or let's say they don't hit the 4,000 store target and they instead do half of that, they do 2,000, then your return profiles would all be much lower. You would be looking at something like 5%, 7% return over uh, the time frame that it takes them to get to uh, 2,000 stores. So you're taking all that risk for a five to seven percent return, which, exactly. in some circles, is not bad, but in some <laughs> circles is not awesome for the risk, right? So it's all yeah. I think also like you're very early in the story. Like you're 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 1998 Starbucks. Like it's it's right. very early. There's so many things that can go wrong. I don't, there are just, yeah. if you want a 5% return, there are much safer places to do that, in my opinion, than yeah, banking on put money in real estate or yeah, something like that. Or, yeah. or just put it into yeah. crypto. I just go yeah. lend it out. Go, 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 go uh, no, I'm not saying, yeah. I'm not saying yeah. buy crypto. <laughs> YOLO and crypto. That's not, that's not safer. No, I'm saying go, go put it into, go, go put it into gold or go buy gold, you know, buy GUSD yeah. or USDC and lend it out on one of these lending yeah. platforms. You'll get 10%. That's definitely safer, I think, than you know projecting uh, five thousand plus store growth in a, in a very short period of time for a company that's you know definitely taking advantage of the pandemic and definitely taking advantage of their core demographic being under thirty years old. Like they're they're playing everything perfectly to date. Can you project them to do that perfectly for the next three or four years? I don't know. It's a high risk, and and to your point, also. They have to execute perfectly while maintaining those margins to get yep. to a you know twenty-five to thirty percent CAGR, and that that's what makes it exciting. But this is a very unproven management team. This is a guy that was selling coffee out of a pushcart. It doesn't mean <laughs> he can't do it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it doesn't mean he's not you know some of the best entrepreneurs. Yeah, come out of nothing. Like but I, I love founder-led led companies. Like you know Howard Schultz started Starbucks mm-hmm. from one store and then grew it to thirty-six thousand store. He was. On and off, you know, he took some time off in between, but you know, he's now still leading the company after all these years. There's Elon Musk, there's Steve Jobs of the world, that kind of thing. Travis Burzma, I, I mean, I might love the guy and have a beer with the guy, but I'm not sure yet about his like chops, like whether or not he's like the right. next Sam Walton. Yeah, and, right. and right. you know, there's some evidence that I'm looking at where he's like <laughs> got his brother-in-law and his sister-in-law as like chief product officer, where I'm like, ah. I'm not super sure that this the, the I mean so did Sam Walton though, right? Didn't <laughs> Sam Walton go in with his brother? It's a family-led business, I guess. Yeah. So uh we'll see. But all right, let's get into the last part of this thing. What do you think? Would you buy it? Um, not buy it. I personally, I, I again I, I look when we looked at this the first time, uh at the valuation, it was just too high. It was trading close to 70. And I said I would look at it. 50 or below was kind of where I was targeting uh, when we recorded the first one and and Today it's at 55. It is so at 50. You know, yeah. Yeah. It's in the range. You know, I, I don't, I don't have a strike price. It's not like uh, if it got to 49, I'm going to buy a million shares. Like I'm not specifically, I don't have a specific number in mind. Uh, it's just at 70 and, and 70 plus. It was just way too expensive. 
Mm-hmm. At a reasonable price, I would take a swing here. And I don't know what reasonable would be. The market cap's still high. Uh, it still projects all the risks I just said. But again, if you can get it, you know, if it gets down to $50, $45 a share, $40 a share, it becomes a lot more interesting because mm-hmm. now you're not talking, your, your CAGR number gets much easier to reach because, mm-hmm. you you know, to to go, you could, you could bubble up, you could get to 100 by the end of this year right? It's entirely possible. So you have a lot more upside built into it uh, and short-term upside too. Uh, if their earnings keep smashing, like the first report they just put out, uh, right. I think it could, it could, it could pop, right? This could be a meme stock. It's a young demographic. This is something that could do a run up in the short term. Long term, I have all the same hesitations. I want to, this is the kind of company I'd want to keep tabs on, read every quarterly report, see how they're growing, see what their expansion strategy looks like. They're up over 500 stores now. So that's good. But there's a big difference between 500 and 5,000 uh, and, and not just from a store count, but like supply chain and consistency of experience, consistency of product. Uh, again, different, different regions, all that stuff. So I'd love to keep tabs on it. I would say I'm out for now, uh, but it's very close to where I would be in. And, and I don't know the exact price, but I'll keep an eye on it. If it dips for whatever reason, you know, macro trends, it dips, right? But there's another thing we didn't really talk about. Um, that I did talk about the first time, which is like, you have uh, a general trend right now of like, you know, after the COVID, you have really low interest rates, you have very high corporate valuations, right? Mm -hmm. Especially in retail. So you have this thing that you like, everybody wants to file an IPO. So I don't know if it's going to be a little bubbly either. We have like Krispy Kreme is going to file and they filed an IPO. I saw like another popular brand called Torchy's Tacos. I don't know them. They're not in Chicago, um, but- Sweet green. Sweet green, right? Uh, gonna do it. it's, it's lots of companies trying to cash in with money being really cheap. Uh, lots of consumer interest in the stock market, which is good for any brand that somebody feels loyalty around. Uh, mm-hmm. And that leads to really ridiculously high valuations. So I, I think this could be an example of a stock that, you know, if you time it right or play it right, you can take advantage of some of those macro trends and say, look, like, I got a good deal on this. It's going to come out with some good earnings. It's going to open up in my city and then a little bit of buzz and maybe it pops. I don't tend to invest that way. I tend to look very, very long-term and say, is this a business I want to be a part of that I think can reach their goals? And I don't want to, I'm not a day trader, right? So in the long run, I don't know. It would have to be cheaper. And, and to me, cheaper would be in the 45 or less range on the price. Honestly, I would love it at closer to 40 or 45, but that seems really unlikely. If it was in that range, I would be a buy. At this point, I'm still a sell. Okay, fair enough. That's that. I, I that makes sense. Um, for me, um, you know, I think the first time that we did this, I was like, I'm gonna buy, and then um, the second time that we did this, it's a little closer, but I think I'm still a buy. I'm gonna buy into this. The um, now, I'm not saying it's cheap because it's clearly very expensive. Um, in terms of its market cap, it's like a 10 billion market cap for an unprofitable company that is <laughs> got like 500 stores, you know, that kind of thing. It's not, it's, it seems like wildly overvalued, but what I do like is that I can kind of see it uh, a path to success with in terms of its market cap. Um, if it can hit that target of 4,000 stores, what makes me feel a little bit more confident about that is that if you look at their growth patterns, they are like pretty much expanding into flyover country in America. Like they, you know, you look at the map and they're like mostly in the West, but in like the inland areas of the West where the land is cheap and the, there's plenty of space to expand. 
And they're going to places like Nevada, Utah, Colorado, New Mexico, uh, Texas, Oklahoma, Tennessee, uh, Missouri. You know, those places, like it's going to be like the Sam Walton story. People aren't paying attention. It's flyover country. Most of the elites in New York, San Francisco, LA will have never heard of this thing expanding like a weed. Uh, retail leases are going to be cheap. And then people, landlords are going to be like willing to make all the concessions that they need to in order to get a Dutch Brothers into their, into their, into their shopping center, that kind of thing, because it builds a lot of traffic. And um, I do think it actually will be surprisingly easy for them to expand in these like uh, flyover country areas. Like, I don't want to use such a derogatory term, but in middle America areas, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, if they hit those growth targets, the revenue, I mean, the CAGR that it could potentially represent is not like what I would expect if like I was investing in a, a company like Tesla. What and is the reason why I'm still investing in a company like Tesla? It's actually probably like worse returns than I'm expecting with Tesla. Um, but it's like nice to sometimes diversify and make bets into fields that are completely uncorrelated. Um, and so I'm willing to take like a very, very small position on this, just so like enough to like keep, keep me periodically reminded that I, either I'm making money or losing money in this tiny position. <laughs> um, and just enough so that I would pay attention to the quarterly reports because sometimes, you know, you, you might not pay attention to the quarterly reports unless you actually do own a small position. Um, and uh, if it goes down into like the 20s or the 30s, which is very possible given its high valuation, um, that would probably be a good time to load up, like to load up on a really big position, maybe leaps, calls and stuff like that. Uh, because if they turn, whatever, if whatever makes them go down to that level, uh, it's probably going to be like temporary confusion about uh, some sort of issue. And then that would be a good time to try to load up and, and lever up on, on and make that position a little larger. Yeah. So it's a very yeah, simplistic I mean, I, I thesis. <laughs> My simplistic thesis is customers like them and it's going to be easy for them to grow in middle America. That's, that's my thesis. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the same as the, the Sam Walton. It, it really is. It's, that was a lot of his strategy to expand the initial Walmart stores and that worked really well. Yeah. What, what change would you, would you still be in for a small piece uh, at the 70 level when we talked the first time? Would you change your mind? Because um, you, originally you were, you were a buy. So, and you're still a buy, obviously, if the price <laughs> lower. Well, but if the price was still at 70, would you, would you still be interested? I probably not. I think that would be a lot harder for me to argue. At 70, oh, so like if it goes from 60 to 50, 70, right? It's a $10 increase in per share prices. And then that really means that they're going from something like 10 billion market cap to 11 billion, 11 and a half billion market cap. Uh, I mean, if you're expecting a triple or more, um, the difference between 10 billion, buying in at 10 billion and 11 and a half billion isn't going to matter in the long run. So yeah, like, like if I'm going to be thinking about a big picture like that, maybe 70 is not completely crazy. I wouldn't love it, but like, yeah, like if I really felt confident that it could hit its targets, then I wouldn't care whether or not I'm buying it at 60 or 70, although I would prefer the lower prices for sure. Um, hmm. So uh, yeah, which implies that if I'm buying it at let's say 60 uh, and um, it goes up to 70, I'm not gonna take the profit at 70 because if my thesis was that it's gonna be tripling 
in five years. I'd want to hold through that period of five years rather than take the quick $10 bump and then, and then be out of there. Like I'd want to hold out for, for, for the bigger, for the bigger gains in the long run. Um, and, you know, the uh, nice thing about taking a starter position is that sometimes you're like really, really wrong. And then it goes really, really down. <laughs> and the question at that point where you've taken this massive loss of this tiny starter position is, okay, is this the time to like lever up and like go in big? Like, and, or uh, was I completely wrong in all of my analysis? And it's probably time for me to take uh, this 50% haircut on my tiny position and then just free up that capital for something else, you know? Um, right. And like Peloton's a very similar story. Like it went all the way up to like the 150s or something like that. And now it's trading sub 50. And that's probably a time for somebody to like, uh, I think we both said no on it at the very beginning. And then watched it run all the way up to 150, and then I watched it like run up, run down back to 50 below. It's probably a time where you'd want to re-examine the thesis around Peloton. This is probably where like most of the people who got in in the 30s and then saw it go all the way up to the 150s are feeling a lot of pain, a lot of regret. Maybe there's some capitulation there, and mm-hmm. um, uh, they're trying. They're, at that point, the tail's wagging the dog, as in the stock price is is influencing what people think about the story of the company. Uh, and it's very yeah. easy for investor psychology to go from, if this is, thing is gonna take over the world, it's the Netflix of fitness to uh, this thing is a complete piece of crap and it's going to die. And why is there, am I buying into a company that's an iPad on wheels, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You switch from like that mindset to mind that, that mindset. And when, when most people are in the, 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 in the iPad on wheels category, that means that sentiment is at an all time low and people have capitulated and they never want to see that stock again, uh, which is probably like a good time to start really thinking about the thesis and whether or not it's intact and whether or not, um, you know, it would be a time to open up a position. So I, I feel like Dutch Brothers probably is kind of like Peloton in the sense that it's richly valued today. It, there's a possibility it could get even more richly valued in the next few months, if it turns into some sort of like crazy meme stock and goes to like uh, an insane $20 billion market cap on 500 stores, which is crazy, right? Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, but uh, uh, so that, that increases the risk that it could go down a lot. And then if it goes down a lot, you'd have to re-examine your, the, the, the thesis and whether or not it's intact. And if it is, then maybe it's a really good time to, to buy while everybody's scared. So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll follow the story. Uh, I'm, I'm willing to take a starter position in this. I like it. I like it. Well, I will uh, we'll keep tabs on this one. If it Again, if the price drops, and I don't know what would make it drop at this point because their earnings smashed and I'm sure their Q4 will be strong as people get out a little more. Um, but uh, yeah, I'll keep an eye on it. Maybe we can compare notes again next time we talk. It, it'll probably be something like the Chipotle salmonella scare, you know, that kind of thing. It's like sugar <laughs> yeah, coffee causes completely cancer. Completely random. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right. Don't okay. drink rebel blood. Yeah. <laughs> the annihilator will put you into a coma, that kind of thing. All right. Anyway, uh, catch you later. And then- uh, Yeah, Gil, good, good stuff. Good talk. Yeah. Bye. Bye.